<laughs> well, a couple of weeks um, after we found out that uh, the child that I was carrying also had Zellweger syndrome, uh, one of my clients asked me to go to San Antonio for some meetings. And I said, okay, I will go. Can we make a deal? Would you buy me an extra night or two in a nice hotel there? And they were willing to do that because I just felt like at that point, I just need some time to think and pray and cry. <laughs> and, and that's what I did for a couple of days there by myself. And um, I, can, I can picture myself sitting there on the bed, looking out the window there in San Antonio before I left my hotel room and just saying to God, okay. If you're going to ask me to do this again, <laughs> then do something really good with it. Do, do something that makes it worth it. And, and to do that, I recognize that I must be usable to you. And so show me how you want to mold me and shape me and change me so I can be usable to you. Because... At that point, I just thought, you know, if to go through this again, if, if he does not use it significantly, I just, I just don't want it to be wasted pain, you know? And I, um, I went to the airport and got to the gate for my flight, and I plugged in my laptop, and I had an email waiting for me from a guy named David Van Bema. And uh, when we found out... Um, about this baby boy and that he would have Zellweger. David and I printed up this card that we sent to everybody we know. And it told them that I was pregnant and that this child had the syndrome too. And kind of addressed how we felt about it. We said, you know, some people might think we have incredibly bad luck, but we don't feel that way. We feel like God is sovereignly in control of our lives and he intends this for good. And just inviting people to um, trust God with us as we walk through what was ahead. And we, you know, we gave that card, we, we gave it to the people at the restaurants that we frequent and the dry cleaners, like anybody we work with or would be running into, mainly to avoid all the awkward conversations, you know, of they see me getting pregnant and they go, oh, how exciting. And you kind of go, well, yeah, but, uh, you know, I mean, that, that's a lot of awkward conversations. So we uh, did this card and we sent it to everybody. And one of, I have, I for years had a media relations business and worked with media people on behalf of various authors and publishing clients. And I had worked with uh, David Van Bema, who was the religion writer for Time Magazine, on a couple of stories that year and anticipated I was going to be working with him in the future. And so I sent him that card. And so when I got to the airport that day and opened up my email. I had this email from him. Let me read it to you. He said, Dear Nancy and David, I was away from the office for a week, which meant that I received your card only a week ago. And then I sat on it for another week because I didn't know how to respond. And now I have two responses, one as a kind of friend and the other as a journalist. And I hope you won't be offended by the latter. As a friend and someone who's considering having a child of my own, I must admit that reading your note was a profoundly disquieting experience. Part of it had to do with my not knowing your family history, so I experienced one shock of revelation after another. And then came that paragraph about your acceptance of God's sovereignty and, at your, and of your awe at being entrusted with this child. 
As I think you know, Nancy, I am not a believer. I write about what I do out of an attempt to understand that which is not like me. However, I have never felt more deeply plunged into the very center of that mystery than when I finished reading your card. I suspect I might not have made all the same choices you have made in this decision, in this situation, but I am deeply moved by your obedience to your God and the words resting in Christ have never seemed so full of meaning. I will not read them the same way again soon. And here's the second journalistic response. I realize that I am only one of many friends you have in the media, and I suspect that I'm not the only one to see in these events the possibility of an examination of what it means to be Christian and human. My editors have told me they would be happy to run such a piece, and I would consider it an honor to attempt one. Let me know if this is of interest. And I sat there thinking to myself, is this what you want to do, God? (laughs) Is this a way in which you want to use this to make it public in this way? Well, David came and spent four days with us in Nashville, four really sweet days, honestly. And um, though David doesn't share our faith, he shared our sorrow. And uh, he wrote an amazing story that ran in Time magazine in the July 16, 2001 issue. This is the issue that was on the newsstands the day Gabe was born. And honestly, I felt like even though he uh, does not share our faith, he understood some of the aspects of and, and articulated some, uh, some of the aspects of God's sovereignty in suffering in, in a way better than many cr- Christian writers could have done. And honestly, the story was beautiful. If you want to read this sometime, you can go to my website and find the link for the Time article and you'll see it there. Um, But there's always one thing I never liked so much about the story, and it's the title. Now, it's it's an appropriate title, and it's a very biblical title. Um, This idea of God hiding his face, we... We read that several times in the Old Testament. The psalmist talks about it a couple of times. And and Job uses this phrase. Uh, He says in Job 13, verse 24, Why do you hide your face and consider me your enemy? Well, perhaps you've felt that way somewhere along the way in your journey. That sense that God has turned away from you, has forgotten you. And obviously, that's how Job felt. Yet while he might have felt that way for a time, as we're finishing up here this afternoon, coming to the end of his story, we discover at the very end of the story that Job says he has now seen God in a way he had never seen him before. So at one point in his suffering, he's saying, God has hidden his face from me. And at the end of his story... He says that he has seen God like never before. Well, how did he get there? How did he go from feeling God hiding his face to seeing God? Because that's what we want, isn't it? To go from feeling like God is mysterious and unknown and perhaps turned away from us to this sense where we can say, I've seen you. I know you now in a way I didn't before. Now, as we left Job, 
in the previous session, he's still waiting around for some answers from God. He has all of those why questions. And he had listened to all of the arguments and explanations from his friends as to why he was suffering. And those were unsatisfactory. He knew they weren't right. What He really didn't want to hear from his friends so much anymore. He wanted to hear from God himself. And in Job 31, 35, he says, let the Almighty answer me. He wants to hear from God. And finally, after all the questioning and all the struggle in a voice that came out of a storm, God spoke. Now, what we might expect, what I would expect, if you had sat down and read the whole book of Job and you've got these, all these chapters of Job and his friends trying to make explanations for what has happened and questioning and talking about the whys and the wherefores. What I would expect is that when God finally speaks, he would answer all of their questions. And more than that, he would kind of set them all straight. He would, he would go through what they have said about him and point out what they did not have right. Or maybe he would have pulled back the curtain. I mean, remember how this story started. It all started with this thing between God and Satan, right? So I would think when God finally spoke, wouldn't he, wouldn't he reveal to Job what was behind this the whole time? But God didn't do any of those things. When God finally spoke, he didn't answer Job's questions, and he didn't explain the spiritual battle going on behind the scenes. God revealed himself. And likewise, ladies, it's uniquely in the storms that blow into our lives that God reveals himself to us like never before. Let's look at just a few tidbits. Turn to Job 38. So here is Job and his friends have been asking, uh, talking about God and why he does what he does and, and really questioning whether or not he does right. And let's hear God respond to that in chapter 38, beginning of verse 1. Then the Lord answered Job out of the storm. He said, who is this that darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? You brace yourself like a man. Let's turn the tables around here. I will question you. And you answer me. So you think you're so smart. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundations? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who, who stretched out a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone while the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy? So God begins by asking Job, where he was when, he, when God began the work of creation. So initially, he, his answer to Job's questions and struggle is to reveal himself as the creator. He's asking, where were you when? Can you do this? Do you know how? And as God reveals himself as creator, uh, it becomes clear to Job. God is the creator and therefore, I am the created. And he can do anything with me he wants to do. He made me. Okay? 
So these questions, God asking these questions of Job, revealing himself as creator, go on for a couple of chapters until at the beginning of chapter 40. And it's almost as if God takes a breath and starts in again in verse 6, chapter 40. Then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. Brace yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. Now, remember that basically Job had said to God that he wasn't fair. I'm sure no one in here has ever said that to God, right? So he's basically saying, you're not a fair judge. You you haven't done right by me here, okay? So here's God's response. Look at verse 8 there. Would you discredit my justice? Would you contemn me to justify yourself? Do you have an arm? Let's say the arm of justice. Do you have an arm like God's and can your voice thunder like his? Well, then you adorn yourself with glory and splendor and clothe yourself in honor and majesty. You unleash the fury of your wrath. Look at every proud man and bring him low. Look at every proud man and humble him. Crush the wicked where they stand. Basically, Job had suggested that God had treated him unfairly. And here God responds to Job's complaint about his lack of justice. In his suffering, responding somewhat indirectly, challenging Job to take upon himself the characteristics of deity, if he thinks he can, including the ability to administer justice in the world. Now, we like to think we are experts on justice, don't we? That we have the understanding and ability to judge what is right and fair in this world. And when God reveals himself to us, when we truly see him, that's when we see true, perfect, pure justice. And we realize that we don't begin to have the wisdom or perspective to judge what is right. Instead, we see God in his innate nature is the plumb line of justice by which all justice is judged against. As God reveals himself, Job realizes God is a righteous judge. And I have limited understanding. God will always do what is right by me. God will always do what is right. You see, God knew there was something more significant than answers to his questions that Job needed to hear and understand to move toward healing. God knew that the more Job understood about the character of God, the power of God, the purposes of God, the more Job could trust him without having all of his questions answered. Ladies, you may feel like you've got some questions that need to be answered. But I want to suggest to you this afternoon that what you need even more than having your questions answered is for God to reveal his true self to you in an unmistakable, unavoidable way so that you can see him as he is, not as a religion or a church has portrayed him or as a book has described him, but for who he really is in all of his wisdom and glory and power and perfection. This is what happened to Job. And when God revealed himself to Job, Job came to understand that because he now knows who God is, 
he can trust what God gives, even when he doesn't understand it. Make sense? Ladies, it's the same is true for us. Our understanding of who God is, that's what enables us to accept what God gives, even when we don't understand it. Recently, I discovered um, a quote by this, a guy named Abraham Kuyper. He was the prime minister of the Netherlands a hundred years ago, and also a theologian. And when I read this, I was shocked at how modern it sounded. Honestly, I thought, this is what I could have said. This reflects my own experience. So bear with me for reading a long quote, and you can read it with me on the screen. I think you'll agree with me. I mean, as you read it, boy, doesn't this sound so modern, okay? It begins this. He says, at first, what our heart feels is that we cannot square this with our God as we imagined him, as we had dreamed him to be. The God we had, we lose. And then it costs so much bitter conflict of soul before refined and purified in our knowledge of God, we grasp another. Now the only true God in the place thereof. We fancy ourselves the main object at stake. (laughs) It is our happiness, our honor, our future, and a little God added in. According to our idea, we are the center of things. (laughs) And God is there to make us happy. The father is for the sake of the child. And God's confessed almightiness is solely and alone to serve our interests. (laughs) This is an idea of God which is false through and through. Which turns the order around. Which taken in its real sense makes self-God And God, our servant, cast down by your sorrow and grief, you become suddenly aware that this great God does not measure nor direct the course of things according to your desire. That in his plan, there are other motives that operate entirely outside of your preferences. Then you must submit. You must bend. This is the discovery of God's reality. His majesty, which utterly overwhelms you, of an almightiness which absorbs within itself you and everything you call yours. And for the first time, you feel what it is to confront the living God. And then begins the new endeavor of the soul. To learn to understand this real God. How's that hit you? Does it feel modern to you? See yourself in it a little bit? The real God. I think Job would say that in the storms of his life, he finally understood the real God. Don't you think? Well, ladies, are you waiting for God to reveal himself to you? Do you want to see what the real God looks like? Well, I want to point you to a storm in which you can see and feel the heartbeat of God. And that is the storm of God's judgment that came down on Christ on the cross. There we see the real God in all of his righteous judgment. You see, God is a righteous judge. He doesn't let sin go unpunished. 
but also God is a merciful father and he has provided a substitute for you and for me so that his wrath would fall on that substitute and you and I can instead of having a barrier between us and God we can draw close to God we can come under the smile of God rather than his frown because of what Christ accomplished there when you are tempted to think that God is cold or removed or uncaring about the suffering in your life, look at the cross and see the length he is willing to go because of sin so that sin will not be a barrier between you and God so that he can draw you close to himself. Ultimately, it is only Christ's suffering that gives us any kind of foundation to make sense of our own suffering. So when we catch a glimpse of God, of the real God, it quiets our questions. That's what it did for Job. Um, in chapter 42, verses 1 and 2, then Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do all things no plan of yours can be thwarted. Earlier in chapter 40, he had said to the Lord, I am unworthy. How can I reply to you? I put my hand over my mouth. I spoke once, but I have no answer. Twice I will say no more. So how did Job respond when he saw God as he really is? Job responded in submission. Submission to God's sovereignty. You can do all things. No plan of yours can be thwarted. I'm not trying to change your plans, God. You know better than I do. Ladies, if we want to respond as a godly woman to the suffering that God allows in our lives, we have to learn what it means to submit to God's sovereignty. And to tell you the truth, modern-day believers... We know very little uh, about what it means to submit to God's sovereignty and suffering. I mean, we are used to having a cure for every ill, right? A fix for every failure. Plus, we've been sucked into believing that responding in faith to suffering means that we believe without doubting that we will be delivered from the suffering that the relationship will be restored, that the body will be healed, that the finances will be provided. And so what do we do? We email everybody we know, asking them to pray for the outcome we've decided will be the best, and then we label that faith. But ladies, faith is not defined by a fight. Unless that is a fight against unbelief, or fight against your own flesh. Faith is lived out through submission. Faith is not measured by your ability to manipulate God to get what you want. (laughs) Faith is measured by your willingness to submit to what he wants. What we need most, ladies, is not to hear God say yes to all of our prayer requests. What we need far more than that is to be filled with 
such a confidence in God's goodness and in his promises that we know that whenever he says no to us, he's doing what is right and good for us. And so we can submit. This is what we see in Job when he says, surely through tears, tears of surrender, where he says in the middle of the book of Job, though he slay me, yet will I hope in him. You see, it takes great faith to say to God, even if you don't heal me or the one that I love, even if you don't change my circumstances, even if you don't heal the relationship, even if you allow me to lose what is most precious to me, God, I will still love you and I will still obey you and I will hold on to my confidence that you are using the worst things in my life for my ultimate good because you love me. That's faith. Submission helps us to let go of our own plans for our lives so that we can embrace God's plan. This is a plan he has put together with our very best interests in his heart and his mind. So ladies, what do you hear God calling you to submit to today? Is he calling you to submit to a difficult situation? A demanding person? An unfulfilled dream? A limitation? A loss? And most significantly, are you willing to submit? To obey God when we don't see the total picture and to trust him with our lives and the lives of those we love when there's only darkness requires submission. It also requires humility. It requires that we recognize and admit that we don't know everything. As God revealed himself through the whirlwind, Job realized that he had been talking way over his head, way beyond his ability to understand, and Job responded with humility. Look at chapter 42, verse 3. You ask, who is this that obscures my counsel without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand. Things far too wonderful for me to know. You see, humility moves us from demanding from God what we think we deserve to thanking God for all we've received that we do not deserve. Responding to suffering with humility means that instead of looking at God and saying, I don't deserve this, we say, Lord, I I don't deserve anything good that you have ever given me. (laughs) Every drop of goodness that I have known and experienced in my life flows out of your goodness. You know better than me what is right and good for me. Have you responded to your suffering with a prideful, I don't deserve this? Did you think, if I were God, I would sure run the world a lot better than this? Or have you responded in humility? 
choosing to let go of your rights rather than demand them. So Job has responded in submission. He's responded in humility. And we see he also responds in repentance. Look at verse 6. It says, therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. 2 Corinthians 7.10 says, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. I love that phrase. I mean, what is more painful in this life than regret? That thing you cannot go back and change, right? Do you want to look back at your response to the difficulty in your life with regret? Well, perhaps you need to repent. Perhaps you need to repent of your response so far and change directions because repentance provides the opportunity for a fresh start with God. Many people think of repentance as something they did one time. That one time that they look back at the time they turned to Christ and they repented and turned. Ladies, repentance is not a one-time thing. Repentance is a lifestyle of being broken for, before God in confession of sin. And while we're talking about it, I mean, when was the last time you confessed a specific sin to God? Can you even remember? I'm not talking, you know, Lord, forgive our sins. I'm talking, God, I'm, I'm looking inside my heart and I realize the reason I resent this woman is because I'm so dang jealous of her. Will you forgive me of my jealousy? God, I, I realize that the issue here is not our finances. The issue is my greed. Do you need to maybe clear out some time this afternoon to find some place by yourself just for repenting? As you look through your life and walk through it and ask God to show you where you need a fresh start with him and a fresh work of his spirit in your life to generate something new. Well, there's a huge turning point in chapter 7 I mean, chapter 42, verse 7. The suffering is over, and God has revealed himself to Job, and Job has responded in humble submission and timely repentance, and now everything changes. It's like the big resolve. His, his life is restored physically and financially and personally and relationally. And when we read this, at the end of his story, we kind of want to say, okay, so what was the point? I mean... Was Job some innocent pawn in some kind of cosmic game or contest between Satan and God? Or was God perhaps doing something good in Job's life through this incredible suffering? When we think back to the beginning of Job's story, we remember that Satan's intentions were to humiliate God and harm Job in an effort to destroy his faith, to cause him to turn his back on God when God removed his hand of protection. The same suffering that Satan intended to turn Job away from God 
we now discover that God has used to draw Job to himself. Now, how do we know that? I think it's in the key verse right here in verse 5 of chapter 42. Job 5, 42.5 says, Job says, My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. You see, Job recognized that while he knew a lot about God before the suffering, that was kind of like reading about him in a book. And Job now realizes that he really knows God because he has experienced him in the lowest, darkest places of life. I have a friend named Angela Robbins. Too bad she couldn't come with me this weekend. She came with me last weekend, but we were driving in the car. uh, Angela and I actually went to the same college, and she was Angela Taylor then. And if you had asked me in college, do you know Angela Taylor? I would have said, yeah, we go to the same college, and her sister and I are friends too. And when I moved to Nashville 17 years ago, Angela lived there. And she and her husband sent their three kids to the same school Matt went to. And so I would occasionally see her in the carpool line, that kind of things. We weren't really friends, but I kind of knew her. And if you'd asked me during that time, do you know Angela Robbins? I would have said, sure. We went to college together, and now our kids go to the same school. Yeah, I know her. Well, when I was pregnant with Hope, that Father's Day, Angela's husband died of a heart attack on Father's Day. And she moved to my neighborhood the night before Hope died. And in the days and months and now years, but especially in those early days after Hope's death, she was my friend who understood. We were both grieving so deeply. And I didn't have to explain to her why I couldn't face parents' night at the school. She understood. And when we were together and would talk about little things and one of us would burst out in tears, we didn't have to explain. We understood. We were, she was a safe place, you know. And over the years, I've been at her house when the heating and cooling broke down and she missed Wes so much, wanted him there to fix it. And I've been there in the middle of the night when her son ran away and she was at my house in the middle of the night when Gabe died. And I tell you what, if you ask me now, do you know Angela Robbins? And I say to you, yes, I know her. I mean it in a whole different way than I would have meant it in college or even 17 years ago when I moved to Nashville. Because you see, Angela and I have walked together through the lowest places of life. We've talked about the toughest issues of life. I think this is what Job means when he says, my ears had heard of you, but now I've seen you. Job is saying, you know what, God, now I've been forced to come to terms with you in the lowest place of life. And you have walked with me in this place. So now I really know you. And likewise, ladies, it's in our storms that God invites us into a more intimate relationship with him than we've had before. And it's here, ladies, where our suffering is either wasted or redeemed. Because we can emerge from our suffering with a simmering resentment toward God and lingering doubts about his goodness that we refuse to let go of. Or we can emerge from our suffering with a deeper dependence on him, a sweeter 
and more intimate knowledge of him. That is what suffering can do. And it's uniquely through suffering that we have the opportunity to move from being a person who knows a lot about God to being a woman who knows God in an intimate way because of the intensity of your experience with him and frankly because of your desperation for him. Ladies, God wants to move you to the place where you can say, like Job, I've not only heard of him, I've seen him. God, I know you. And he might use pain to bring you to that place. Is God speaking to you through a storm in your life? And are you listening so that he might reveal himself to you in a way you have never seen or understood him before? And have you come to the foot of his cross so that you can see him revealed clearly and beautifully there? God wants to use the difficulties in your life not to punish you or hurt you, but to draw you to himself. Will you come?